Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I'm really excited to welcome Seth Tierney to the Philacrosophy podcast. Seth is the head coach at Hofstra. He's been there for 14 years. He's played days, played at Hopkins, coached at Hofstra as an assistant from 95 to 2000, coached at Hopkins again um, from 2000 through 2005, was a part of a championship run in 05, um, was the offensive coordinator and associate head coach there, and then moved on in 06 to be the head lacrosse coach at Hofstra. Um, he is currently the chairman of the advisory board for the PLL and an assistant coach on the USA team. Uh, Seth, really fired up to have you on the Philosophy podcast. Jamie, thanks for having me. Looking forward to, uh, looking forward to this, uh, this podcast here. Awesome, man. The Philosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now. Um, okay, well, I would really love to hear about your experiences with the USA team, um, you know, from the perspective of what was it like, what did you learn, um, and, you know, the pressure of that championship game. I mean, I know it was a year over a year ago, but it was such an incredible game, but I, I would love to hear, and I think people would love to hear what it's like to get that level of talent and what it's like to coach them. And also to be able to coach with such great coaches. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I couldn't be more humbled and honored uh, to have been selected to be uh, one of the USA assistants to, uh, to work alongside John Donowski again, who's one of my mentors um, to work alongside a lot of guys that I knew or had coached. Um, and, and, and like you said, that talent, and then to be in a, in, in a game of, of USA Canada, uh, with that type of feel to it is, uh, is pretty special. Not many people get a, get a chance to do that. Uh, and then obviously the way it turned out, um, was a little bit storybook ending for us. Uh, and then, uh, you know, again, then the, the next part of, of being asked to do it again was, was, was pretty wild. But uh, a great, great story. Just uh, heard Coach Danowski was going to be named the head coach of the USA team. Very well deserved and, and all of his accolades and, and success. Uh, reached out to him and, and basically said, uh, I'm, you know, should I apply? Should I not apply? I don't want to mess anything up. Maybe you have a staff already. Uh, you know, we worked together before. We had a lot of uh, a lot of heartfelt conversations going into it. And then it was up to a committee, you know, with U.S. Lacrosse. And I think there was 30-something uh, applicants. And, you know, for them to pick three, and Joe Amplo and Tony Resch and myself um, really rounded out a, a great staff. And, and Coach Danowski is, you know, he is the type of coach and the type of person where he just wants to, he wants really good people around him. I mean, and again, I guess I'm not, I'm not creating anything wild like that. Everybody would like that, but it's really, really important to him that he works with people that 
um, that he will get along with, that understand him, that we that he understand us, and uh, and part of that chemistry I think dripped down to the players, and that's where uh, hopefully that last goal came from, or at least played a little bit of a role in. Yeah, it seems like Coach Stanowski, it, that sort of uh, way he built a culture drips down in, in all the programs. It seems like people are happy and they're pretty good about playing well when they need to. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, he wants players to play. He wants them to be themselves. He wants to play good fundamental lacrosse. He, uh, he'll certainly let you know if uh, you shoot a ball sidearm um, and that you could have shot it overhand and have a little bit more accuracy. He'll, he'll let you know. Um, but he wants guys to have fun playing this game that's been so good to him and to all of us. Um, so he wants guys to, he wants to just get everybody into their back into their comfort zone. And as you can imagine, when you have these USA weekends that maybe aren't tryouts, but they're events, um, you know, he, he does spend a lot of time trying to think of what the guys are thinking and let's get them back into their comfort zone so we can really get to know them. Uh, and one of his, you know, one of his statements at the end was win, lose or draw. Let's make sure that that locker room is made up of guys that we want it to be and not just pick a guy because we should or, you know, of, 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 a, of, a, of a talent or an ego. Let's pick the right team. And, uh, and he's adamant about those things. How do you craft you, – you've got the best players in the United States, which is many of the best players in the world. But we know that we're going up against Canada that has another set of great players and some of the best players in the world. They play very differently. Um, how do you, you know, prepare a group and choose what you're going to do and then say, well, also, we're, we're trying to win a gold medal here, and we know that it's going to be a very different game than we're used to kind of preparing for in college across. Yeah, I mean, we, when we first got together and, you know, the team started to form after we announced the team. Like, we couldn't make that happen any sooner. Everybody was kind of on their toes until we announced the team that would travel to Israel. Um, and then at that point, that's when the text groups started to form, uh, the relationships started to form. And, and there were a few things that we were concerned about, you know, the, this guy plays on this pro team, this guy plays on this pro team, you know, do they get along? And, uh, so when we got together at training camp, uh, you know, coach Danowski did his, did his sprinkled his magic dust on it and, yeah. and sure everybody, you know, got to know, know people as they were not of what people thought of them, but who it really is this guy and, and going forward. Um, when I looked at the 10 offensive players, yeah, listen, we're not playing six ball soccer out there and not everybody's going to have the ball in the stick. But I did spend a lot of time watching these guys play in the pro league. And, um, and so with that being said, I just try to put them in, in spots where they could be successful and not overcoach. At times, you know, I just didn't want them to feel like they were making a mistake Wearing that jersey is such an honor that nobody wants to make a mistake. It, it's not like wearing your practice tank for a college practice. You know, you put on those colors and those initials. Um, it could sometimes take you over a little bit. And uh, we just wanted guys to, to feel their own. And, and let's just let's put Rob Pinnell in a, in a, in a really good spot to be successful. Uh, Jordan Wolf, a really good spot to be successful. You know, we talked about Ryan Brown. You know, what does he bring to the table in regards to this? And then you got, you know, a host of these midfielders, uh, Rabel, Schreiber. We moved Matt Danowski from attack to midfield, basically when we get on the plane to head over to Tel Aviv. And, and it was a wonderful, it worked out. You know, you've made those coaches' decisions 
that you know you did back in the day where they they just seemed to work out like you sometimes you you really wish they would work out and yep. you kind of you know urge and push them to work out well this one worked out well and you know and, and to have guys like ned cry every all of them yeah. um you know we called them the one tenth crew and everybody just had to bring a tenth we're not asking anybody to bring any more or any less you are just a spoke in the wheel here and if we can rely on everyone equally then we'll be able to pick the weight up together um and as far as the canada game we just really didn't talk about it we knew Tony Resch was a great resource for us because he's been in those games and you know how long and how respected he is in the game. And he just said, listen, there's something about that game. Not the first time you play him, but if you are fortunate enough to play him in the second time, then there's something about the air that's just a little bit different in the USA-Canada gold medal game. And he was right. The first game was, um, you know, it could have it took place in the, in, the, in the yard of a prison. I mean, it was guys going after each other and it was, it, it, they knew that, you know, let's just get, let's just push in the pile and see where we're at and get a good film and then study that film later on. And then once the championship came in, it took a little time to settle in because of the enormity of the game. Yeah. Amazing. Would you mind going through uh, guy by guy and just giving us a little bit of a description of either like what's so special in your opinion about the player or, or, and, or what you learned from them? Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> certainly, you know, start with Paul Rabel. He is, you know, the, the ultimate competitor. Um, obviously starting this pro league now, there is no site that he can't, he doesn't think he can't reach and uh, unbelievable player. Got a chance to recruit him back when I was at Hopkins. Uh, his family has strong ties to the University of North Carolina. So we had to change that up and, and he decided to trust us and come to Hopkins. Um, and then to be back on the sidelines after the 05 championship that you mentioned earlier, to be back on the sidelines and win a championship with him. But he, um, he just, at the end of every one of these that we'll talk about, he just accepted his role of either he was a one more guy, he took the pole away from two other guys so they could play against short sticks, um, and and literally didn't didn't want to be the show. He just wanted to be a one tenth of what's going on. And then we certainly wrung him out of all of his experiences in international play, and he played a huge role with that. Um, Tom Schreiber, uh, you know, a guy that. <laughs> Some people are calling the, the best midfielder in the world. And Tommy was a pleasure to coach. All 10 of these offensive guys, they just wanted to be coached. And that doesn't necessarily mean X's and O's all the time. It just want, they wanted to be part of something special. And at the end of it, you know, Coach Krzyzewski spoke to our team and he called it the forever game. And this game will last forever with these 10 guys and I'm just you know, happy and, and blessed to be part of it. But Tom Schreiber, he brings such a multi-dimensional player, a feeder, dodger, scorer, a one more guy, ground ball, effort. Um, and he was not, and he wasn't even close to being 100% healthy. We just couldn't leak that out and, and go from there. But Tom wasn't missing this. And for him to, to play to the last 1.4 seconds right. and have the wherewithal to use this pick that was set by Ned Crotty and Rob Pinnell, who had, um, you know, probably got the biggest assist of his life in that scenario. Uh, you know, we couldn't have asked for more out of, out of Tom Schreiber. Uh, Matt Donowski 
interesting dynamic, you know, uh, father's the coach. Um, <clears throat> how's he going to feel with all this stuff? The guys on the team voted him captain. Uh, what a, you know, a tremendous honor. And Matt was a coach out on the field. And the best thing about Matt was he knew the line. You know, we played against the, uh, uh, the pro all-star team and, and we came up short by a goal. And we, that was probably the best thing that's ever happened to us because we had to go through adversity. These guys had to know how to come back into a huddle and they accepted all the criticism and all the things we needed to work on wonderfully. And to have a guy like Matt, who's a coach, um, and understand what we're trying to do offensively and to be the eyes and the ears out there. He did a wonderful job managing himself and managing the guys out there. And, and Matt, my relationship with Matt goes back to, you know, when he was, uh, he was a, a baby, a, a young guy. And I was working with, uh, you know, coach Danowski here at Hofstra and we were playing wiffle ball and, and still to this day, Matt can't hit my curve, but with that being <laughs> said, he, uh, he's a wonderful guy out there and it was a pleasure to have him. Uh, Rob Pinnell, I mean, arguably one of the best attackmen, if not the best attackmen to play, um, can get up to five and five, uh, on just about anybody, you know, Graham Hasek is obviously will give him credit because he's a hell of a defenseman for, for Canada. And, and he gives Rob, you know, everything that he can handle, but Rob didn't take a shot in the first 60 minutes of the game. And he understood that. And, you know, when, when have you been to a game where Rob Pinnell has played in where he didn't push the envelope in and didn't go to the goal and try to, you know, and, and try to help his team by getting that. He just knew that the time wasn't right. And then all of a sudden he drove up left-handed. He, you know, he threw a little backhand pass to, to Rabel. Rabel threw it across the field to Brown and Brown threw an, an, an underhand low to high shot and to, to tie the game. And uh, you know, you got two superstars in, in Pinnell and Rabel just playing, playing lacrosse and, and the young guy, the first time guy, why we brought him was because he could shoot the ball and throw the ball in the goal. So Rob was wonderful to work with. He, every time coming off the field, just tell me what you want me to do. I'll carry the water. I just want to be part of something special. Um, Ned Crotty, I got a phone call from Ned and, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, Jordan Wolf. Let's go with Jordan first. I got a phone call from Jordan and, and he just, what an unbelievable person. Uh, he just wanted to play off of Rob. And I, and I, I thought on that phone call, I just said, hey, nobody's playing off of anybody, right? We're the one-tenth crew. Everybody is bringing a dime to the table, and we'll, we'll form a dollar together. And, you know, he's going to play off of you just as much as you're going to play off of him. And, and he had just a wonderful tournament, uh, his speed, his ability to get topside, all of those things. And his just his ability to be a great teammate was unbelievable. Uh, Ryan Brown, you know, is a guy that we just spoke about. You know, we need, you need guys, you need scorers. As you know, after all of your years in this game, there are players that play offense, there are offensive players, and then there are scorers. And Ryan Brown's a scorer. And when you put together a group of Rob Pinnell and Jordan Wolf and Tom Schreiber, Matt Donowski and Paul Rabel and the others, and you throw Ryan Brown out there, well, the ball is going to find its way into his stick because he knows that he's not going to dodge a whole lot but he, if he puts himself in some good spots and we can help him do that, then he's going to get enough shots off. And we're thankful that Ryan Brown did his job and, and scored a lot of goals throughout the course of those two weeks. Um, Ned Crotty, stud of a person, and probably goes unspoken of where the pick heard round the world. You know, he sends this back pick with one, two seconds to go, three seconds to go, and everybody talks about the, Rabel, uh, the, the Pinnell feed and the Tom Schreiber finish 
Um, you know, and we were fighting Tom Schreiber. Hey, can you please cut with your stick in your outside hand? And he cuts with the stick on his inside hand because it's, it's box and it's more getting, you know, getting more angle on the goal. And, and he showed us that there's a different way of doing it. Um, but let's not forget about this pick that Ned Crotty played. And, and Ned, you know, I'm sure people are like, wow, Ned made this team. Ned is uh, an unbelievable ageless player that scores goals, does things that are just right, um, always makes the right play and finds himself in the scoring column or the points column or just a good play, you know, what we would call a turnpike play all the time. And, uh, you know, Ned is just a a wonderful ambassador of lacrosse, and I'm so thankful to have some time with him. Um, Drew Snyder. Drew was a guy, you know, this midfielder, and he went on one heck of a run, right? He goes to Israel, he wins a gold medal, he comes back, he wins a pro championship, he uh, goes into the following year, he wins another pro championship. I mean, he's got the Midas touch right now, and, and Drew was, was very sick for the championship game, um, you know, total blood and guts of, of just putting on a uniform and getting through it, and, and just all week long. Uh, Drew was a guy that we can count on on just making the right play and and understanding the, the I don't know the I guess the the procedures that we wanted to follow but also take advantage of the looseness and the freedom that was out there and if we didn't do that with Drew then I think he would have felt handcuffed so you know again he's he's at his best when he could he could do Drew things and we're you know obviously thrilled with that uh, Marcus Holman I mean. What a competitor. Uh, I love what Marcus Holman's about. Says the right things when he's supposed to say them. Uh, plays the right music when he's supposed to play it in the hallways or in the, in the locker room. Um, just wants to win. Uh, zero to do with Marcus Holman. And, uh, you know, he just did a great job of getting a bunch of time and making use of it. Uh, one of our goals was, and, and it may not have happened at some other um, USA teams, we tried to get everybody as equal time as we possibly could because everybody deserves, you got 23 studs, you yeah. know, everybody's given out. So, you know, we played that first midfield and second midfield as even as we could. And up until the last run of the gold medal game where we went back with the ones and that was the only time we didn't go one, two, one, two. And uh, we just felt like those guys were hot and we went to that one, that one double run for, for the first group. Um, but, but Drew Snyder, awesome. John Hawes, what, a stud. Stud. I mean, uh, quiet. Um, you know, he doesn't talk. If he if he doesn't need to say anything, he just sits back. He absorbs everything that he could possibly absorb, and he just rises to the occasion when the time comes. He's never going to hurt you. If he does, he 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 will he'll get it back for you some other time during that game tenfold. And again, uh, a, a a son of a coach. Um, we had both the boys out there with Will as well, but John Hawes. I mean, again, what a uh, what a tremendous what a tremendous player. Uh, Coach Danowski had was was dead on with that pick, and so just said, I just love what this what this guy is is about. Um, and um, who who are we missing here? Uh, Matt. We talked about Matt. We talked about Tom. We talked about Paul, uh, John Hawes, Ned Crotty, Drew Snyder, Marcus. Rob, Jordan Wolf, and Ra- and Ryan Brown, all ten of them, right yeah. there. And we called it one. Yeah, we called the one tenth crew, and um, you know, uh, just a little snippet at the uh, at the ring ceremony. 
you know, we gave out some gifts and, and guys probably thought that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a different cat to begin with, but I went out and I bought a, you know, I bought 10 bowling pins, you know, what comes in groups of 10. And uh, I got each guy a bowling pin and they signed them for each other. And I just wanted them to have one tenth of something so that they put it on their mantle in their office. Again, bowling, nothing to do with lacrosse, but they know that there are nine other guys out there that when they're racked together, they were, uh, they were successful. Yeah. That's incredible, man. Thank you for sharing that. All right, let's um, beam back into uh, the late 80s, early 90s and talk about uh, your Hopkins days, uh, what it was like playing there, playing for Zim, um, all the coaches that you played with and then the coaching with. Um, if you don't mind, give us a little, uh, a little flashback. Yeah, so I got a phone call from a coach named Bill Tierney. He was an assistant coach at Hopkins. Uh, at the time, I was at my father's house having dinner, and he uh, – I don't want to say he pressured me that there was pressuring back in recruiting back then, but he, uh, he said, what are you doing here? Are you going to make a decision? And I, you know, I told him, I said, listen, my dream was always to come to Hopkins. Thank you for everything that you've done. And, uh, you know, I accept the offer to go to Hopkins. And uh, he said, I'm so proud of you, all that stuff. And he goes, uh, I'm going to Princeton. And I said, what? I mean, after this unbelievable phone call that's supposed to end in a, in a, in a happy moment, now you're saying that you're leaving to go to Princeton? He goes, yeah, you know, they, it's the right move for me. And I said, well, should I go to Princeton? And on the phone, without any hesitation, he goes, you're not smart enough to get into Princeton. So that was the end of that, <laughs> that, the end of that conversation. And uh, we kind of passed each other on the Jersey Turnpike as I was heading to my freshman year down in, in Baltimore. He was heading up to Princeton, where he would ultimately go on and, and, and make the legacy of, of him yeah. as a head coach. Um, Uncle Bill, and Uncle he's your Bill. mom's or dad's brother? He is my father's younger brother and uh, has played a father-like role with me. And, you know, he leads the list of mentors in regards to where I am today. And um, getting back to Hopkins days, um, they won it in, 90, in 87 when I was a senior in high school. And, you know, when, when you're that, you're, you're thinking, wow, how special is this? Walking into it, and these guys are going to have rings on when we get down there. And it was an awesome run. And to play with guys, certainly Coach Petromala was, was on that team. He was, uh, he was Dave back then or Petro back then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to play against guys like that every day, James D. Tommaso, Quint Kesnick, you know, guys like that defensively, and Brendan Kelly, Matt Panetta, Billy Dwan, Brian Volker. I mean, the list goes on and on that are still in the game or, or name, names of those games, um, names of, of lacrosse. One of the – not one of the best four years that I had, I could ever have. I would not change a thing. Uh, we, we unfortunately came up short in 89 against yeah. uh, these uh, – these twins, they, they, they're called the Gate Brothers, uh, was one heck of a game at College Park where it was sold out. It was <laughs> Leif Elsmo was doing the play-by-play the -play on uh, ESPN, and to be part of that and get in that game was unbelievable. And obviously watching Petro and, and Gary going at it and Brian Volker and Paul going at it. And, you know, and you, you, know, you got the Zalbertis of the world and Rodney Dumpson and Matt Palum. You know, there was some there were some stars on that field that day. And I was, again, I was proud to and, and humble to just be part of it, but great experience. Coach Zimmerman taught me the game of lacrosse, uh, how to play it. Uh, it gave me those opportunities. Um, and then in my senior year, Tony Seaman came in and, uh, and, and again, when you get coached by different coaches, you become a different player and you become a better player because you understand that there are different ways of looking at things, but uh, 87, 91, great years of my life. Tell us about Petro. I mean, do, 
people don't, uh, you know, if you didn't grow up in that generation, it's hard to realize just how good he was and how athletic and how fast and how big you saw him every day. Um, tell us some stories about what it was like to go up against him and, and things that kind of like amazed you back in the day. Yeah, I mean, Dave Petromala was, will, will go down in my eyes as the best defenseman to ever play the game. I, I, you know, I know that there's some great ones. I don't want to leave out John DiTomaso and Pat McCabe and all of these guys, but Dave Petromala was a game changer from the defensive position. And not only would he neutralize the other team's best player, but he would push the ball. He'd get the ball back for you. I mean, it was just unbelievable the impact that he had on, on a game. And, um, you know, he, he was great to, to go against them every day. And, and I, you know, mostly played midfield uh, in college. So I wouldn't necessarily match up against him from time to time. But, you know, there's obviously a couple of stories before practice would start. We would switch sticks and, and we would get after each other. And, um, and, and you know, he was a guy that looked after me. He, he respected my uncle very much so. And when I got to campus, you know, he took me under his wing and, and, uh, and Petro was, you know, it, people, whatever would be said back in the day of the late 80s, Dave Petromala would be the, when we were competing in practice, there was no better competitor. And on game day, you never were even, you wouldn't even question yourself if, is, hey, is Petro going to show up? He was already there, and that's what that's what he he lived for. And he was just an unbelievable teammate uh, to watch, to go against. And then, you know, ultimately, we didn't know back in '87 to '91, but he would end up giving me, you know, a, a shot at coaching with him, right. uh, and ultimately, you know, winning a championship after a pretty long drought at Hopkins in '05, which is a pretty special year. Totally special. Before we move on to to the, your next stops, um, I have a theory that the players in that late 80s, early 90s, like you'd mentioned, all those names, you know, the Syracuse guys, the Gates, Marichak, and Z, um, and uh, McCabe, and then all the Hopkins guys you mentioned. Yep. Um, you know, have, are, wouldn't these players be the best players now, too? I mean, I don't think there's any question. Who, who's more skilled than John Zoberti? Who's, you know, who's better than the Gates? I mean, the Gates kept doing it until, you know, like 2000 and I don't know. 2008 or something. I mean, like, like I know the game has, has grown. There's so many more good players than there ever has been. There's more good coaching. There's more good athletes. Everything about the game is better. But I look back at those days and I'm saying those are as good and as skilled of players as, and good athlete, athletically as, as we've ever seen. Am I in a dream world? No, not at all. I think if you, if, you, if you took out that Jamie Monroe time machine and you put all those guys in it and you transformed them back to today's game, and they had all the resources and the equipment and technology, um, you, your, your statement would be dead on. Those guys were just unbelievable to play with and play for. I don't, I, I'm nowhere near that level of player. I reap the benefits of being a third guy on a first midfield so I can get the ball to certain guys and, and do those things. I, I was well-grounded on, on who I was as a player. But, you know, Gary Gate, Paul Gate, um, Sometimes it took five to 10 minutes to stop being in awe about them and that you're playing against them. And then, you know, I certainly had a chance to play them when I played again in the New York Saints and they were playing for the Detroit Turbos. Um, you want to talk about two machines. They were like cyborgs. Yeah, they got, there's no blood. You could beat them up. They would never even say a word. Uh, and you play hanging all over them. 
uh, to just, they really changed lacrosse as well as Petrona and a couple other guys. They really changed it. They did. And as great as they were, Volks and Petro, you know, are the two guys that actually could. And Brian Volko referring to as the head coach at Drexel, one of your teammates, and you coach against them uh, once or twice every single year. But, um, man, I've seen some of the films on that. It's just awesome. And it was like lefties on lefties, too. It was kind of like the kryptonite for the game. <laughs> no, no question. Petro, you know, he, he knew his move. You know, he would beat you, and then he would rip you over the head. And whether it would be on the goal line or not, and Coach Sim would be pulling his hair out of his head. But he got the ball down to the ground. And Volks was just this vanilla guy. He wasn't going to wow you with some fancy, you know, walking the dog stick skills. But he was going to lay a check across you. He's going to let you know it was going to be a long 60 minutes. And he was just going to play good, solid defense until you broke. And, and those were some of the best battles that I got great front row seats to watch and be part of. It's pretty awesome. So through the 90s, you ended up at Hofstra from 95 to 2000. What did you do uh, in the first few years before you got to Hofstra? Yeah. Got a chance to open up a restaurant called The Crease, a lacrosse-themed bar. Uh, when, I, when I left Hopkins, I wanted to get into business. That was my goal. And uh, there was a crease down in Maryland in Towson. And uh, so we, we bought a, a place over in Merrick and, um, and opened it up. And, and the theme was lacrosse and had a chance to play for the Saints in the you know, indoor league a little bit. Um, got a chance to, to, to meet my wife at, at, in, in the business. She became a partner. And Ultimately, I ended up started to work for her. We all know what that's like. And, uh, and she ran the show, so it was great. And, uh, and then one day, Coach Danowski walked in after, uh, after a wedding or a, a rehearsal dinner, and he was looking for a volunteer. And I, you know, I basically jumped in front of him, and he said, I would love to have you. Um, I would close the bar at 4 in the morning and drive over to Hofstra, and practice would be at 5 or 5.30 in, um, in the fall. And, and then I'd get a chance to sleep for a couple hours before we did it all again you know, back to the bar, back to Hofstra, and uh, just for, forever thankful to John Donowski for allowing me to be on the sidelines with him and to introduce me to this world that has really dominated my life and my family's life. So that yeah. part of it was great. And uh, so, again, worked here for, had some great years in those late 90s and, and won some uh, conference championships and, and went to the NCAA tournaments and, and, uh, and met some great people. And then you... Um... Got brought on with uh, Petro when he took the job. Was it when he when he actually took the job at Hopkins? He brought you along um, when he when he was building his first staff. Yeah, I, we was I was actually down in Baltimore on vacation uh, with my mom and my wife. Uh, my wife was was pregnant, but we had Ryan at the time as a you know maybe a, a two year old, and we were down in the Inner Harbor and uh, got the phone call and and Petro just said you know I I would love for you to 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 come down and and work together and and run the offense. And, uh, you know, I, I sat there and I, I stared at the phone and, you know, we were at this hotel down in the Inner Harbor and, um, you know, I, it, was, it wasn't an easy decision. It was an easy decision to go ahead and do it, but the ramifications of the decision were, were not as easy. Um, <clears throat> my, my mother, you know, uh, I come from a, a divorced home and I'm very close, was very close with my mom. She is no longer with us. I'm very close with my dad and he's no longer with us, but it would be that that was going to be a tough, a tough move uh, just because, you know, we, we were, we had such a great relationship going forward. And my wife is from this big Irish family where, you know, she's one of eight and, and none of the kids have moved off the Island. Um, so the support system was there and we were just going to pick up and we were going to sell the bar and, uh, and, you know, a few other things that we had, and we were going to go down for, 
you know, back then, I think Petro goes, I really tried and I, I, I got you the best offer. And, you know, would you come down for $50,000? You know, back then it was a lot of money and it oh, yeah. was one of those, you know, people would turn their nose up to it now. Um, and we made some extra money with camp and, and, and I, I couldn't turn him down. I couldn't turn Hopkins down for them giving me an opportunity to go and, and go to school there and play there. And uh, so I, uh, I ended up, you know, telling Coach Donowski and, and calling all the guys. Uh, I remember one phone call to a guy by the name of Doug Shanahan, who was the first Tawaraton winner. Uh, he wasn't thrilled with my decision, and it took him uh, a couple of years to, to get back on the phone with him. But that's the competitor that Doug was. And uh, certainly I've had, a, you know, an opportunity to coach him and, and, and him to be that first Tawaraton. But then, then the rebuild was, was going to take place in Baltimore, and uh, it took a few years. Um, we found ourselves, you know, back in the in the final fours, and then uh, after a, a loss or two in '03 and '04, uh, '05 happened to be a magical year. Yeah, it was, and you guys played such great lacrosse. I mean, I used to, I was the head coach at Denver then. And I'm building a program, and you know, you're always looking to see what the best are doing, and uh, and the way that you guys moved the ball and drew slides and were unselfish and. You ran, a, if I recall, a ton of 1-4 stuff where you had all kinds of pops and different sort of mumbo looks. And it was like, just kept you honest as a defensive coordinator. But talk about the philosophy and how you came uh, came to playing that way. And, and do you do some of that stuff now? Yeah, I mean, listen, we, we came to play that way. I, I think that probably there's some coaches out there that may may make a mistake because they want to coach what they what they know versus – what are their what are their ingredients and and how do we get the most out of our ingredients and when your top ingredient uh, could be a guy by the name of Kyle Harrison uh, that's pretty good right there because he was technically he was almost untouchable for for two or three years even you know you know we'll, we'll cancel out his first year because he was just getting his feet wet but he was almost untouchable versus pole his split dodge and his explosiveness were almost uh, you know unheard of of what's going on sure. so uh, again, those guys made me a better looking coach. And, and you've had players where, you know, you can coach everything you got. You coach, you know, coach your butt off, but you are what you are in, in certain scenarios. But when you have guys like Kyle Harrison that are, 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 are split dodging and drawing slides, and if they don't come, he's putting the ball in, the, in a coffee can somewhere in the goal and Maybe some of your viewers only know what a Keurig is, but a coffee can is pretty small there. Um, and then you got, you know, intelligent guys like Bob Benson and Adam Doniger that really started this off. And then Connor Ford was the, the Ryan Brown of Team USA and guys that can stretch you from the outside. And then you enter Paul Rabel, Greg Pizer, Peter Lasore, you know, guys like that. And, and Kyle Barry. And, you know, we just all had roles and those roles kind of fit. Um, and you, you know, they weren't, they weren't afraid to make mistakes, but they just knew how important spacing was, um, what was going to take advantage of some of these defensive schemes and, uh, you know, everybody did it. And, you know, if you wanted to be a finisher, then work on your shooting, you want it to be a, an igniter, then work on your dodging and then you can expand your role. Otherwise, um, then we, you know, you needed to do your role and Bob Benson wasn't going to, he wasn't going to win the 40 yard dash versus a lot of people. But I tell you what, he was going to find an open gap somewhere inside and he was going to make you pay. Yeah. How, how do you even characterize Kyle Harrison's split dodge? I mean, obviously he's got incredible athleticism, but like how, how did he do it that was different than everybody else beyond the fact that he just might be quicker than you? 
uh, you know, A, he was quicker, but his mindset was just there. And I, we used to go and watch him play basketball for the friend's school. And, um, you know, it, again, his first year, he was disappointed in his first year uh, a little bit with us. And then at the end of the year, I just said, listen, I, I want to know what your summer league schedule is. And I just want you to play left-handed. You may look foolish at times, but can you imagine if you're at just as dangerous uh, lefty as you are righty? And he went out in the middle or the heat of the day with his cousins, um, and they would go and, and they would, you know, get all the balls for him. And he would just go out and work and work and work. Um, and his drive to be great, um, you know, I, I look at him, it, certainly in the Mount Rushmore of Hopkins midfielders and off, offensive players, he's a guy that, you know, uh, I have an unbelievable relationship with to this day. Um, but he was a guy that he just wanted to win. Um, he wanted to be able to, to be loose. And we actually started, he, his basketball was his first love. And we actually started calling plays like N1 and things like that. And just to get his basketball looseness and calmness and focus out on a lacrosse field. And once that happened, yes. I mean, we're talking about, yeah, we're, I mean, literally we're talking about untouchable, you know, even with pole, yeah, untouchable. He, he had some shake. I remember talking to Mark Van Arsdale back in those days, and he was talking about Kyle's jump shot. <laughs> and the fact that, like, he would elevate so much that he was, like, shooting down over the top of the goalie as his stick was extended, you know. And I think, like, in those early 2000s, the jump shot was still like, um, you know, questioned as to whether it was fundamentally a good thing to do or not a good thing to do. Um, and uh, I, I'm actually curious about your opinion on that. I have my own theories on why I think jump shots can be very effective or not. But do you, do, do you, um, did you teach that to him? Did he do it on his own? And what are your thoughts on that? On that? Would, would love to take the credit for it. It's all him. And, and with that being said, it was, he was comfortable. Like, you know, anytime that you coach a goalie, there's something that could be, really not fundamentally sound but if he finds a way maybe it's fundamentally sound to that particular player yeah. and and he just felt comfortable dodging down the alley and pushing off and getting some snap in the air and again maybe the jump shot had to do with basketball in his head as well um i haven't seen many people you know imitate that as we went forward as well as he a couple of guys out there but with that being said if he felt comfortable doing it then go ahead and do it. And when a player is going to work on it and make it right, then then he was, you know, again, he had carte blanche. He had the keys to the car. And if he wanted to do that, then, you know, he was too too good of a person and too great of a player to not allow him right. to do something that was what would be considered not fundamental. It was definitely not considered that way. I mean, certainly now it is. Although Ryan Wade was a big jump shooter in the yeah, early, yeah. in the mid-90s, right? And, you know, yeah. nobody really paid attention to it. I, I personally think that, the, the jump shots are interesting because they can they can really give you a different release and and, and it, it changes up the timing of your release and I think actually a lot of midfielders will shoot jump shots better right-handed whereas they might shoot just better on the run lefty and if you look at Paul Rabel that's usually what he does actually he shoots more jumpers on the run righty and shoots on the run lefty but you know how every midi is like oh I shoot a little better on the run lefty anyway because they get the push pull out of their strong hand at the bottom and sometimes I think that that jump shot is a little bit of a solve for that. But No, no, no question. And, and remember, Paul was a couple of years behind Kyle. And so he got a chance to be doing individual work with him. And, and like we said, Paul's work ethic is second to none. He sees something. 
He wants to get there. He wants to be, yeah, he wants to be great at it. There's really, you're not stopping him. And, and so he watched Kyle, he studied Kyle throughout high school and while well, his days at the Matha and now, you know, then all of a sudden now they're going to be on the same team and, yeah. and you know, Paul actually, he didn't play a whole lot in his first couple of games. And we go up to Syracuse and we're down by six or seven goals. And, you know, I remember, you know, Coach Petro coming up to me and giving me that look going, you know, what the hell is going on down there? And, uh, you know, we just needed a little bit of a boost. And, and in came Paul Rabel. And that was his debut into college lacrosse. And he ended up getting, I think, four or five goals that game. And we come back and, and win by one. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the country got introduced to Paul Rabel at that time. I remember Paul Rabel playing on the man up down in a low feeding spot when he was a midfielder as like a sophomore, which I was always amazed by because I was like, well, here's a guy that's kind of a, you know, dodger and shooter, but you had him in one of the most key shooting feeding spots and he would put it in there all the time. I forget who was on the inside for you, but it seemed like he had a lot of assists in big moments being able to sort of slide it in there against in your little drop down. Paul, Paul, Paul's a better feeder than he is a scorer. He is because he's just that, that consummate team player. He is. And he, he's going to bury a shot going down the alley, but his eyes and his ability to read defenses and make plays uh, on basketball court. You're talking about another great basketball player uh, as well, but he would feed the ball behind people's heads. He'd, he'd lead you to where you should be and, and kind of feed you into a pass. And, uh, and he had a great ability of doing that. It's awesome. So you guys ended up, winning that championship and then it was after that that you took the job at at Hofstra yeah it's a one more year after that and uh you know we I, I I did do the 2006 season uh at Hopkins and the irony was I was uh, you know at Stony Brook we were going to play Syracuse in the quarterfinals and and Hofstra was going to play UMass and you know I always had that that heart for Hofstra the place that got me started coach Danowski all those guys and they had this uh this heartbreaking loss versus That's UMass never. And I, and I felt it in the runway as well as we were about to take the field. And ultimately, you know, Hopkins lost that game to Syracuse and didn't go to the final four in 06. Um, and then, you know, and, and then the, that, to be honest with you, you know, not to bring it up, that Duke incident happened and right. it had an impact on my life. You know, this, there was this party and this, this bad scene happened at Duke and, and ultimately, you know, uh, that program got to shine that they were good players and, and what they were being accused of was not true. Um, and, and coach Danowski got the phone call to go down to Duke. And so with that, it left the, it left the, the head coaching chair at Hofstra open. And so at that point in time, um, you know, my mom was battling some cancer. Uh, Hofstra was a place that I loved near and dear to my heart. And, you know, as you know, there's not that many head coaching jobs. And for, for Jack Hayes, who was the AD at the time, and President Rabinowitz and, and all the, the, the people here at Hofstra, um, you know, to get that phone call and, and for them to offer me the job to become a head coach there, um, uh, you know, it was maybe it was a weird way. I know that, you know, Hopkins had some great runs uh, yeah. leading up to that. So my name was being thrown around. I was certainly fortunate. And I owe that to the players at Hopkins for, for, for getting my name out there and doing those things. Um, and then certainly my time at Hofstra with Coach Danowski, it all kind of fits together on why I'm here today. The Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. 
Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Pat Kalaluri um, from, from the headstrong brother of Nick, former Hofstra player. You never got a chance to coach Nick, um, but you've become a big part of their life. Do you mind just chatting a little bit about your thoughts and how, how Nick and the Kalaluri family have uh, influenced and impacted your life? Sure. So I, uh, I accept a job at Hofstra. Uh, I fly back down to tell my wife um, and my son is on the little uh, peewee football field, uh, got, got football practice. And you know, when he comes off the field, I'm going to, we're going to need to tell him that we're moving, bud. And uh, he didn't understand that there were going to be seven year old boys in Long Island. He just thought they all lived in the, in the Timonium area. And uh, I, when I got home that night, you know, that's when I really started to get to work. What is this Hofstra team about? And, and who are the leaders? And what are the stories? And where do we start? You know, you do, when you become a head coach, you do these chair spins where you just spin in a circle and you don't know where to begin. Um, and I was, I was fortunate enough to, you know, obviously Joe Amplo was here um, and, uh, and, and he got me caught up to speed on what's going on. So my first phone call after hearing about Nick Calori was to Nick and the Calori family and uh, drove up from Baltimore, made a little bit of a pit stop in, in, in PA and, and got a chance to start our relationship off. And um, Nick was battling non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, got a chance to to learn about the whole story and and how it happened and and become part of the fabric of the Kalori family. Uh, I, like you said, I never got a chance to coach him on the field, um, you know. But he he made it uh, to a couple of events at Hofstra, and we got some time to spend with him um, before ultimately him, you know, passing away in, in November. And and it was certainly it was a it was it was a tough day. Michael Kalori was was a sophomore on the team and. Um, you know, I, I was, my job was now to look after Michael and, uh, it was probably my first, my first 1.0 scholarship, you know, without even a heartbeat, it was whatever money Nick is getting, please just transfer it over to Michael. We don't need another player. We need the Kyle Laurie family to know that Hofstra and Hofstra lacrosse is, is where we, that our hearts are at. And, uh, Tough road for Michael. Uh, obviously, you know the memories every day, the locker every day, uh, the number twenty-seven every day, and uh, and he just handled it like a superstar. Like he handled, like he wrote the book on how to act and how to respond when your best friend and your brother passes away. Um, and if there's not a book out there, then Michael should write it because he was just a stud. Um, obviously, went through the whole funeral. Uh, all, all those things, and and still to this day, number twenty-seven stands strong in our locker room. Uh, what the Calories have done um, to remember Nick and to and to continue his uh, vision for helping those that are been affected by cancer is absolutely unbelievable for people out there. If you haven't listened, please listen to the Pat Callery podcast I did, and and. And you'll be blown away by what they're doing. I mean, they, these people work so hard and all they're trying to do is make people's lives better. Um, it's pretty incredible. I made the mistake of having a conversation with Mrs. Kyle Laurie when we started a golf outing and we started the, the fall lacrosse event to raise awareness and raise funds. 
you know, back when this thing was, you know, was brand new. And, you know, four or five years later, I, you know, I remember literally driving here on Long Island and, and have her on speakerphone and go, yeah, Mrs. Kalori, you know, this is really hard for me to say, but there's going to be other tragedies and people are going to end up giving their time to this other tragedy or maybe their finances and, and people go through this all. And I don't know what the, the, the lifespan of, of Headstrong was. Uh, I didn't see her. <laughs> I didn't see her face, but she was just laughing at me. And that lady is wonderful, and she is the, the heartbeat of that family, and she is a pit bull. Uh, she that no is does not exist in the Kalori fabric. Uh, we're going to get it done. And what, like you said, what they've done um, in a world that is constantly pulling people in different directions for support and help, and where they've come. It is incredible. I mean, she is a competitor. She is relentless, you know, which is obviously one of the terms in, in, in Headstrong. Um, and she basically had a family meeting around the table and said, I'm the lead blocker and you're going to follow my lead and Headstrong will be relevant as long as I am here. And, uh, you know, there's got to be a lot of credit that goes to that family and certainly Mrs. Calori. Yeah, amazing. So you're, you've been at Hoster for 14 years. Um, psyched to talk to you about some philosophies on that. I wanted to, you know, you, uh, you've been to four NCAA tournaments. You won the Colonial in 2008. And by the way, I never thanked you for that. But that, that pretty much got Denver into the NCAA tournament that year. It was kind of funny. Like, you know, we had a pretty good resume, but we didn't, we didn't, we lost in our first round conference yep. tournament. And, and you're looking at all the things that need to happen, right? You know, everybody on that, on that weekend is like, okay, I need them to win. And then it's like, oh, and I need, I need Hofstra to lose. Um, and then I was like, then you guys won. And I was like, oh, actually, I needed them to win. And they won. <laughs> and so uh, um, yeah. pretty, um, pretty, exciting, pretty exciting start. Um, to talk about how you've sort of evolved as a coach. Because, you know, when you become a first-time head coach, like you said, you're spinning, trying to figure out what to do. It's kind of like having kids – you, you can prepare for it all you want, but you really have no idea until, you, until you're into it. Um, and just talk a little bit about your evolution as a coach um, during your 14 years at Hofstra. Yeah, you know, you get here and, uh, you know, you just, you, where do you start? You want to put your scent all over everything and you want to do it by like lunchtime on your first day, right? Yeah. And everything you just, I, I need a new stapler. I need a new pen. You know, you want to start from the bottom and you want to change everything. And I, you know, after, after a week of that, I kind of just took a deep breath and go, I got to take over and continue what Coach Donowski started here because he's such a wonderful uh, person and what he was building here, there, there was no need to just stop and go, let's, let's change everything. Let's continue with what he was building here. So um, he obviously gave me a great springboard to start my coaching career here at Hofstra. And uh, again, what, my, what I learned with him, what I learned with, with, with Coach Petro down at Hopkins, what I've learned from my uncle, who's all going to, to, to just take part in informing me. And, and again, you're right, you know, 14 years ago in my first, uh, first season on the sideline as, as the head coach, um, I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I'm cheering, I'm high-fiving. And then 14 years later, you look back and you go, wow, that was, that was an awesome time. But you look at the game a little bit differently and you change as you get a little bit older on maybe what is more important or what's less important. And, and we go forward there. And I'm incredibly thankful to, to all the administrators here, all the ADs that I've had for allowing me to be me. 
um, and run this program in a first-class fashion. Uh, the alums, I, I can't even explain to you the support that they've given. Uh, and I'm talking about emotional support. Well, we've got, you know, <laughs> we've got a great group of alums that are just blue collar and they know what it is to just grind out a season and what one goal wins means, uh, you know, all of those things. And we've had a chance to beat the Johns Hopkins uh, a couple of times. We've got a chance to beat North Carolina three years in a row, uh, you know, the Ohio Ohio State's, you know, people out there, Princeton's, we've won Notre Dame when they were one. You know, we've had some big wins here at Hofstra. And, uh, you know, the conference we're in, it's a tough conference. UMass and Towson and Delaware and Drexel and Fairfield now, you know, it's a battle. It is a battle. And there's one ball games up and down every year. And for us to get to the NCAA tournament four years, uh, I'm I'm awfully proud of that. And our goal is obviously to, to win the CAA this year and every year and get back to that NCAA tournament that is, it's, it's harder and harder to get to with all of these new teams and the new landscape of lacrosse, but it's just a new challenge, and I can't wait to, to get out there this year with our guys. But, you know, I couldn't do it without some of our alums, and, and obviously naming Jim Metzger, uh, you know, Tony Perrettini, uh, Joe Carello, uh, the, the list goes on and on, P.J. Bajornaby, all these guys that have stepped forward and, and have given the support here uh, that a, a young head coach back then and, and, and now uh, starting to get gray hair head coach now, um, their, their support has never wavered, and they have just been wonderful. And then for the last 13 years, all those guys that have graduated, uh, the way they come back, the way they support the, the, the guys on this year's team, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been awesome. That is awesome. I have such great memories of Hofstra myself. I, my, um, I, I drove down to watch Virginia and Brown play at Hofstra in 1985 when I was <laughs> here in high school. And then my opener was against Virginia at Hofstra in 1986. My first coaching recruiting ever, Coach Walvogel in 1991, hey, go down and watch, you know, the uh, county championships at Hofstra. And so I get down there. I see Jeff Goldberg. I'm I'm going to buy a ticket. He's like, no, no, follow me. We'll hop the fence. And so, you know, got got initiated into, you know, hopping the fence. Um, And then then all these years of playing, you know, at at Yale, we played Delaware at Hofstra every single year. And I recruited. And there's so many NCAA tournament quarterfinals that have been there and so many incredible games. And I've watched Hofstra win a bunch of big games too. I remember when they beat uh, Hopkins in the '90s, um, and um, it was it was just awesome. It's awesome stuff. And and uh, the, the sad news of dropping football some years ago also opened the door to make uh, Hofstra a, a true lacrosse school, which is pretty awesome. You guys have some of the best facilities um, in uh, in Division One lacrosse, obviously with the opportunities to host all the time. So tell us about your thoughts on this season. Yeah, this season, uh, real excited. I mean, last season we had some uncanny injuries that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to explain. You know, a guy, you know, got a broken jaw. We had a broken back. Uh, we had a broken foot. Uh, we had, you know, a crazy shoulder issues. We had a, our, our, one of our best defensemen did one side lunge right before the opening whistle of a game and, and tore his hamstring. Uh, you know, you get, you get to some of these years where you just can't, you know, figure out why is this cloud following us? And uh, so we had a tough year on the field, a couple, you know, close losses, and, uh, and, and the guys are, are hungry to get back. Um, we've got some good freshmen that have come in this year. 
a couple guys from Canada that were looking forward to helping us. Um, and we've got all those guys that were banged up. They're back and they're hungry because they know how precious time is in a game uniform, you know, with only a certain amount of game opportunities, you know, which is probably going to be less than 60 or 70 in their career of putting on a game jersey. Um, you got to cherish everyone. And so when the couple guys missed that last year, uh, they're looking to double down on it this year. So uh, we're looking forward to it. We had a, a good fall. Um, we had, you know, uh, hosted the, the Kyle Laurie event and, um, and it, we got a lot of guys, some playing time, uh, guys are working hard in the individual portion right now in the eight hour period. Um, they're working hard with our strength coach and, uh, and then we're looking forward. We're, we're going to head up to Syracuse, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks or a couple, you know, two months when we, when we first get going, uh, yeah. screw them in Vermont and then come back and we open up against Wagner, um, in, in our opener and, uh, looking forward to it, looking forward to, you know, Every moment, uh, as you know, as a dad, uh, you know, got my guy here uh, yeah. who's a senior. And um, I remember yesterday when he committed, you know, that's how close it, that's how quick it goes by. You know, I felt like he committed yesterday and he's going to graduate tomorrow. And you, you almost sandwiched this experience into three days. Like, you know, yesterday you commit, today I coach you, tomorrow is graduation. And uh, it just goes by fast. So just looking to, uh, to obviously squeeze out every memory I can with him. Uh, my daughter is here and she's a sophomore on the women's team. And, and it's just a, it's a joy at times just to, to look out the window, uh, watch her practice and, uh, and, and certainly support her um, on the, with, the, with the women's team. So special. Um, I got a chance to coach my son in high school and I didn't get a chance to coach him in college, obviously, but um, what I'm sure it's so special. I, it, just uh, there's probably a lot of dad coaches listening here. You know, what, what are, what are some of the things that you kind of learned or some of the things that, you know, advice you'd give to the, to the dad coach? Cause sometimes we're too hard on our, our own. Sometimes coaches are too easy on their own. How do you find that balance? Yeah, I, I would, I would tell, I, I would tell all those dads out there that are coaching their sons, you need to go and get two things. You need to go get a mirror and you need to go get a picture of your son or daughter. And, and you need to know, you got to have a, have a conversation with yourself on how, if I say this, how are they hearing it? And what's it like for them? Forget about you as the dad. What's it like for them to be coached by their father with all of their peers around them? And, and maybe that would change uh, your approach, uh, how you say things. Maybe some things need to be said on a phone on the way home instead of everyone else. And it's going to take them a little bit of time to build up some of those social skills that the yelling at your son, you just want the most out of them, but they take it as you're just harder on me because you want to yell at me. And then they are, they're also saying, well, he's just yelling at me because he's my dad. And there's a lot of intertwining and complex uh, communication lines that need to be ironed out. Uh, I learned that from Ryan Tierney. You know, there was a time where, you know, I, I wasn't handling it right. And he taught me a lesson and he was going to walk away from lacrosse. And the answer was me walking away from his fourth grade lacrosse game because he was not, you know, uh, he was not playing like one of the Hopkins guys. And I was coaching him like a Hopkins guy. And I, I learned that lesson from a fourth grader. And, uh, and for since then, it's been pretty smooth. Uh, you know, there are times that I would like to, I would like to light them up a little bit and get yelling and screaming, but I know that that could be counterproductive and maybe we just let it go. And, and I speak to him on the side, but the guys on the team, uh, they certainly know that Ryan is, is not 
nowhere near any type of pedestal. He's going to get it, and he's going to get it probably for them as well. But I'm just thankful that Ryan understands and handles the situation maturely uh, on what's going on. Yeah, such a fun player to watch. I love his game, slick, smart, lefty, you know, can, can kind of do it all. You know, you don't think of him as a Dodger, but he can score one-on-one. So that's going to be exciting. And that really is a good segue into my next question for you, which is what, what is your offensive philosophy? Um, and uh, what, how are you playing now? I'm sure it has something to do with your players, but I'm sure it also has certain to do with principles that you believe in. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, right, we have a new offensive coach this year. And his name is Tim McEntee. And Timmy Mack, Timmy Mack. yeah, Timmy Mack is, is going to run the offense this year. And uh, last year, he, um, you know, he was a volunteer as he transitioned back from Mount St. Mary's. And uh, Timmy and I were, were teammates on the New York Saints, and I looked up to him. He was this running back that, that moved like a cornerback and had the skills of a quarterback. And he was just one of these guys that was just uh, wowing. Uh, to watch. And um, I am thrilled that he's running the offense. Um, and, and together, we talk about some offensive things. But just like Coach Petromala did for me, and Coach Danowski did for me, you know, you be you. And, and, and because it's going to be really difficult if I ask you to run an offense that I know uh, inside and out and why it would take advantage of a defense. I don't want you to get caught without any answers or maybe not believing in that because there's just many different ways of looking at things. So I want Timmy Mack to be Timmy Mack and I want the guys to know and learn from him. We have conversations in the office. Um, He knows, uh, he references some of the things that you referenced, this 14 popping offense and and 22 stuff and the things that I ran (laughs) back at Hopkins when I was in charge of the offense. So I'm real excited about it. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm real excited about it because I just want Timmy to be Timmy. I want John Gorman to be John Gorman. I want Mike Gongas to be Mike Gongas. I want my coaches to be themselves because they're here for a reason. So let's let him coach and, and we'll talk about things in the office, but we're on the field. You do you. Um, but we're going to do, again, we're going to do a lot of team stuff. Uh, you know, we're going to have some initiators. We're going to have some guys, some finishers. We're going to have some in-between guys and some, some brains out there that just understand the flow. And, uh, but we want these guys to play loose. And I know that that's the way Timmy was great. Uh, and coaching offense is different than coaching defense. You know, right. when you coach defense, you have to figure out what they're doing offensively. When you coach an offense, you got to let the guys figure out what they want to do a little bit and, and put them in different spots. So I've been thrilled so far this fall with Timmy, you know, coaching the offense. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to watching it and just being a little bit of a, a voice behind the scenes and, and being there to help Timmy. Um, on, on days that, you know, we don't score as many goals as we want and, and not change everything and to believe in what you believe in. And it's going to happen. And then certainly congratulate them on days we overscore. I think Tim McEntee is one of the great coaches that not that many people know. I, I think you're so lucky to have him. I love that guy. When he was in Manhattan, he did an unbelievable job. And, oh, my God, the stories of him practicing in some park. And there's like a – a, a dude cooking squirrels on the sideline in a little hibachi. I mean, the story of that guy, in fact, I got to do a podcast with him just to get those stories because they are like literally priceless. Coach Mack is, a, is an unbelievable storyteller. And yeah. you know what? I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, he, he went to Manhattan 
on an opportunity. And he went there with a vision to change that program and to go from there. And then, you know, went to Dartmouth and then went to, to Mount St. Mary's and he left a a, a positive scent on every program. He's played at the highest level, multi-sport athlete. um, And again, has seen it all. And uh, we're, we're awfully lucky to have him on staff. Yeah, no doubt. He's awesome. When you think about um, offense, you know, in, in 2020, um, what, and, and you sort of look at the trends of what's been going on, how would you characterize the way offense is kind of played and, and how defenses are making that happen, sort of, when you sort of think about the evolution of the game, say, you know, even in the last, you know, five, ten years, or the, even in your times at Hofstra, how, how have things changed, would you say, um, sort of just big picture? And what, what are you guys, what's everyone facing now that's different than maybe years ago? Yeah, I mean, starting back even at the Hopkins days, you know, it was this Bill Tierney defense, right? This Princeton defense of what's going on and, and how he was playing and hedging off the crease and, and doing certain things. And, and then the popping scenario. Well, if they're doing this, then let's pop the guy that, whose, whose guy is supposed to slide so that we can lengthen their recovery a little bit. And with certain stick work, maybe we can find someone on the other side of the field or, uh, you know, a rainbow guy at the end to shoot it and go from there. And then, it, you know, then it kind of revolutionized into this high wing offense, right? And everybody's going to be dodging down, down the wings and see if we can get guys to slide at, at bad angles and maybe beat them to the other side of the field <laughs> in their recovery, but certainly taking bad, bad angles. And then you get this two man game to come in and this infusion of box lacrosse and, can you do it outside and do this hybrid that you basically, you know, invented of, of keeping that stick in your, on your shoulder and, and, and doing these things and having these shallow cuts and putting these defensemen in communicative ways of do I go, do I not go, uh, when do I go, am I the clear through guy? And then, you know, you were a little bit of the inspiration in regards to that. And then I think, you know, along these rules, now you're talking about a lot of goal line offense, right? Because now how do defensemen play this goal line offense? Is it is it advantage offense because they have to push or they have to play you and you're going to get pushed into the crease and then the dive and things along those lines. So I do think offense is offense. We got to, you got to, if you don't have, these unbelievable few players, right? I mean, who's got an attackman that can just down outright beat guys to the goal and make it happen? You know, the Pat Spencers of the world, the Rob Pinnells of the world, those guys are guys that move the needle, um, you know, and then, you know, you talk about you know, some of those middies that would, that would come out there, the Tom Schreibers of the world. If you don't have those guys, because there's so few of them, then you got to figure out what's going to ignite defenses. How are we going to put them in tough spots where they have to communicate, where they're going to have to rotate, where they're going to have to recover, and then how can we lengthen that recovery? So I think a combination of, of some of that high wing stuff with the two-man stuff, do you stay and set a hard pick? Do you, <clears throat> do you slip out and then have that carry into a little bit of a goal line scenario? Do you fade the guy at X? Are they shutting the guy at X? And all of these things have now revolutionized into what offense is, you know, and putting these people in, putting these defensemen in some tough spots. And, and I think that we're starting to get away from just dodging short sticks because I think once you get close enough to your defenseman, it really is irrelevant on what size of the stick that they have because the, the stick is irrelevant. It's now they're playing with hands. You wouldn't know if it was a pole or not. And, and I think that you got to, you know, you got to go with your igniters and I think you got to look at your ingredients and, and what type of groceries you're bringing to the table here 
on what type of meal you can make. And uh, again, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It goes out to the recruiting. Where does this guy fit in? And, uh, you know, a la putting together this USA team, we don't need another Dodger behind the goal. Rob Pinnell and Jordan Wolf. that's plenty. Now we need guys that are going to make those guys look good and, and, and make it harder to play. Yeah. The, the comment you made about, you know, when you get in, basically when you get inside the length of the pole, you might as well just have a shorty because he's basically playing, you know, with a stick at his hip. And yep. it's really interesting. I feel like Lyle Thompson was one of the guys that kind of taught me that more than anybody. He would get so close to you, but he yep. would just be just outside of your ability. All the box players actually, they play so close to you. And they kind of, it, it, when you get that close to your defender, you can really control them. Yeah. No, you there's no question. You can knock them off. You can bring them to you. You can make them shade you one way or another. Yeah. I mean, one of, the, one of those drills that have taken on, I mean, you used to remember at Denver or, you know, back in those days where you would do four spot one-on-ones and you would start, you know, outside the box in all these areas. And now you do these close knit one-on-ones where the guy, maybe he has his hands on you already yeah. and that defenseman needs to know how to steer you. And that offensive player needs to know feel on where he is on your back or your shoulder so that you can decide on which, which direction you're going to go in. For sure. And, you know, you, it's funny because you see in the PLL, the most dominant attackmen happen to be the guys that bang you the most, that yeah. are physical, that are posting up. Um, it's not to say you wouldn't love to have a Jordan Wolf, right? I mean, that kind of speed. But he's actually pretty darn physical, too. I mean, he'll post you up. But, but you know, you just look at the Matt Rambos and even Connor Fields. He's not even a big guy. Uh, Cuccinello, I mean, you know, you are – um, on the board of the PLL's advisory committee, you're watching a lot of PLL games, and I'm sure you're kind of looking at the trends. And one for me, you know, is really learning how to have a great post-up game. And I actually think that a big trend is going to be for the midfielders to be able to do the same thing. Because if you get to the high island, right. you know, and you got a shorty on you, and you're comfortable there, and you can feed – you know, you, it's, it's, you can try to double it if you want to, if they turn their back, you know, but if they're kind of sitting there and they're looking at you, it's pretty hard. And all of a sudden you can get some of these little rip moves and pump through the gaps. Um, like Jojo Morasco did this year, you know, I mean, that guy can't run anymore and he gets right to the goal. No, there's no, there's no question. Um, certainly watching all the PLL games this year, I was astounded by the level of talent. I mean, those games were awesome to watch. And those guys did such a great job in the first year of that league. Uh, I, I'm not, this is not a advertisement for the PLL. This is just, it, it is what it is. And that product was impressive. Uh, and to get a chance to be part of it with the Rainbow brothers, uh, I'm awfully thankful that they, yeah. you know, I would be a good, you know, uh, someone that cleans up the table uh, at the end of meetings just to be part of it. And then they allowed me to be part of it. And it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful and, and great, more, more great things to come with the PLL, but the players, and you're right. You know, I think that you and I, you know, as soon as someone would start to slide, move the ball, move the ball. That may be a thing of the past because now that guy might be more dangerous with someone on him and, and, and learning how to play with someone on you where moving the ball will allow the defense to get out of a tough situation rather than keep them in a tough situation. So true. And it's the difference between running by somebody and getting by somebody. And then forever, we're just kind of like, well, he can't run by anybody. Yeah, but he can actually get by people, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's really what it's all about. And I think the Canadians and natives have taught us that. No, no question. There's a guy, you know, you could be covering a guy, but you're not, you, you don't have a, you don't have a great 
angle on him. And, and we always teach in our offensive guys, don't give it up yet. Yes, he's standing there, but he's not in position to be covering you. And we're, we're letting him out by you moving the ball. Understand what is, what is there and what's not there. Yeah. All right, so last topic. I, I love hearing and picking the brains of Division I coaches on recruiting. So um, starting with character, how do, you, how do you evaluate that and what are you looking for? Yeah, I think you, you know, in today's day and age, you know, you really got to do some homework because with the phone, with social media, um, if you take a chance on a, on a, a young man or a young woman and there's some question marks, um, it, it's an issue. It, it, it's going to be an issue. And, and I don't, I think that I would, I still would rather have grown up when you and I grew up because it's hard. I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't envy what goes on. I, I get the technology and it's very cool and you can look things up quickly and you can, you know, you can understand things and you can get some guy to pick you up in a car in 30 seconds and yeah. take you wherever you got. But I think that there's some downside to it. And there was definitely an upside to the phone rings. I'm not here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to answer it. Now, now you're on 24 seven and that makes life a little bit different when, you know, you used to have a quarter on you and, and these guys don't even know what a payphone is, but uh, you know, the recruiting, uh, there's gotta be some trust, uh, you know, with these high school coaches, these club coaches, because even, even with the, the rules of now just 11th grade, um, you don't have a whole lot of time to, to figure out exactly what type of player he totally is, because maybe you see him twice before yeah. there might be some commitment talks um, and what type of person and you got to be able to read through uh, some of these club coaches or, or high school coaches that are just looking to get their guys on division one rosters at any expense. But you, you know that there are coaches out there that would give it to you straight. And uh, again, the, the sport is growing at that youth age and at the high school age and, and within the country and more states picking it up and sanctioning lacrosse. And that's going to be awesome. There's guys out there. Uh, you know, we've always been successful here at Hofstra. And I think a lot of coaches would say it when guys just want to be here and they want to play for you and they want to play together. So we're looking for, for some of those glue guys. I'm not looking for the best guy in the two top club programs um, in a game like that. Life is totally different than that club game for that T-shirt later on. How is that guy – get back in the car and say, how is that guy going to be as a freshman in our locker room? And is he going to stick it out at the first sign of adversity? Or is he – how many club programs has he played on? Has he transferred a bunch? Does it look like he's not facing adversity? Because as we all know, those early wake-ups in the weight room and the runs and the cold and things like that, you know – the club guys are not putting their guys through any of that. And so it's a little bit of a false read at times. Yes, we fall in love with talented young men and women, and, and that's going to be the first sign of it. But then it's up to us to do the due diligence of classroom, person, family, you know, experience, and, and where are we in, in regards to a relationship with this young man? We'll get more out of someone like that than we will out of the superstar who scored the game-winning goal at the Hershey tournament or whatever it may be. <laughs> um, how, obviously if you're in person with them, there's ways to sort of see what their character's like. Uh, you can oftentimes see what their parents are like. Um, how are some of, you know, how do you do that in person? And then how do you do it when you're kind of just watching a, a, a game? Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, we, now, now that we're in November, and I'm not sure when this will air, but, um, you know, we're in recruiting time. So, you know, the, uh, we all come back from a recruiting weekend and everybody, you know, who's your guy? 
you know, who's the one guy that you want to bring to the table right now? And that'll bring four guys, you know, one from each of our coaches. And all right, let's start doing some due diligence. You know, do we want to bring this young man to campus for a visit? And the only reason why we ask that question is time is valuable. I don't want to waste any time if, if this is not right. I understand that you saw how talented he is, but let's find out what's going on. Is he, what type of student, what type of person, you know, how does he, is he coachable? Will he be, a, you know, will he be a turnpike guy here on Hempstead Turnpike? And we got to answer that question because, you know, there are times you're going to make some mistakes. Well, maybe, maybe later on, maybe this weekend coming up, we'll find a better one, a better version of those guys. So let's not rush into it as we go forward. A lot of times, you know, you make these mistakes in fall recruiting. The guys just take their sticks out of the closet. They, they throw it against the, ball, the wall a couple times. And now we're evaluating them after, you know, a practice yeah. or two or right. nothing. Don't make those, you know, don't see that fall facade, you know, as you go forward. Let's stay with it. There's going to be plenty of guys out there. Um, so, again, we're, we're actually being, with the new recruiting, we're being be more careful on what's going on. There's roster caps out there. Yep. This transfer portal has changed the world a little bit. It's yep. very easy to transfer what's going on. And, and again, I had, you know, as, as early as last night, I sent out a text to, to my assistants and said, hey, why don't you guys just jump on the portal and see who's out there? You know, uh, uh, you know, I, partly I want to make sure that I, they don't come back and say, hey, Ryan Tierney's on the transfer portal. I gotta make sure that, <laughs> that doesn't happen as well. But we also got to make sure that, you know, what's going on out there. And it's, it's got to be part of the thought process. All right. So when you're looking for attackmen, there's kind of positions within positions. What are you, what are you kind of looking for there? I'm looking for a guy that, you know, moves well. Um, we talked about it, uh, how he reacts when he's crowded, uh, a guy on him. Um, is he still have his head up? Is he less worried about who's covering him and more worried about maybe where the slide is? Um, does he play other sports? Is he a quarterback? Is he a point guard? You know, does he have those traits to control things from behind the goal? Um, even if he's a midi, is that guy, does he fit those traits? And maybe he's an invert midi that could really see some things and understand what's going on. Um, if a guy is a fabulous shooter and, and he's a finisher and he's a, a scorer, well, does he fit? You know, where does he fit? Are we going to have, you know, a, a peanut butter to his jelly? Are we going to have another guy that's going to be able to, to do all those things? Um, and again, a, just a skilled guy, an effort guy, and, and a hard-nosed guy that's going to be willing to turn the corner because, as you know, you know, in today's day and age, these defensemen, everybody's got personal trainers and everybody's bench press in a refrigerator now. Yeah, so true. Um, when it comes to recruiting Canadians – um, you probably – do you see them as offensive players? Are you kind of like a positionless lacrosse-oriented mind? Offense is offense to me, and, and we'll make it work. Uh, again, we've been very fortunate in the, in the country of Canada. We've had a couple of great ones. Uh, you know, I, just, you know, starting – I didn't ever get a chance to coach him, but I, it was my first film of watching Ethan Iannucci. And oh, yeah. some of the things that he could do, you know, certainly in his senior year was magical. I took over the year after. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted to go back and watch all of those films and, and what he could do with a lacrosse stick. And then, you know, we had Jay Card, Adrian Sorichetti, uh, you know, Josh Byrne. You know, we had some pretty good guys that played a lot of lacrosse for us and, and indoor. And those guys could play both attack and midfield. And they were scorers, but they were playmakers. And now, you know, we certainly move forward and we've got a couple of Canadians on our team now. And, uh, you know, Dylan McIntosh and, and a couple of young guys and Justin Sykes and Ryan Sheridan. We've got a couple of them out there 
that that we're thrilled to have and 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 when we go up there we have to we have to put it through the test as well because when Canadians are playing against Canadians it's one look how are they going to play against an American defenseman that's six three six four with a with a you know a basketball pole playing defense a little bit it's a little bit different but you know yeah. you can certainly pick those guys out. Sheridan might have had the best goal I've ever seen this summer. Did you see that one hand behind the back goal in the senior game? Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, what a stud that kid is. And then Sykes is is uh he's a um total stud too. Is he Brampton kid, I think? Yeah, he came from over there and he was you know, he's one of those guys, you know, a little bit of Oakville in there as well. And he's one of those guys that um, you know, he, he got injured this fall, but we're 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 certainly those two guys, um the light bulbs are on and their futures are bright. What what is what what do they bring to the table? That generally speaking, Canadians as it relates to like um, how it sort of changes the way you view the game and how you coach it. Yeah, I mean, listen, when if you're gonna if you're gonna recruit Canadian players, then you better you better understand that you your offense should have some Canadian flair to it. Let's not bring them down and run an offense that they've never ran before or doesn't have some box lacrosse traits. Because now we're taking them. Yeah, it was wonderful when we watched them in the in the championship, you know, or the or one of the Minto Cup or whatever it may be. But if we're not gonna if we're not gonna do what they're comfortable doing, and and we'll meet somewhere in the middle because now we're playing field lacrosse. But we have to we have to be understanding with that. And guys will will blossom in in systems like that. And Coach McIntyre has been wonderful with that of of running some two man game stuff with them and some exchange stuff on the backside and uh, and and then teaching them certainly how to how to dodge one on one versus pole because that's something that's not very you know it's a little foreign to them. You're not going to spend a ton of time with Josh Byrne on righty alley dodges. Uh, no, you know it's it's uh, it's one of those things where these guys teach you that <laughs> what, they teach us what you've been teaching maybe you want to question yourself a little bit because there is other ways. And there are, when we say fundamental, there's nothing that says cradling backwards is not fundamental. It is of what's going on. Tom Schreiber taught us and, you know, there's nobody more fundamental than John Donowski. And he's like, Tom, there's little kids watching you play as a USA lacrosse player and you're cutting to the left pipe with the stick in your right hand. It's not right. And then he goes on and he wins a, uh, a gold medal by cutting to that side. Uh, with his stick to the inside, and uh, you know, yeah. it, it just it, it, it makes you go things that make you go, hmm, maybe maybe there's a way to teach this differently, but a different type of fundamentals. The late great Dave Huntley always talked about stick to the middle and did a lot of lot of studies and stats um, where he basically studied 15,000 MLL shots and found that in every quadrant, other than dead center, your your shooting percentage was higher with your stick to the middle. And Tom Schreiber, you know, reached right around on that catch no, and finish, we, and, you know, we certainly missed sort of lefty too, but you know what? He had more angle righty. Oh, no question. And then you, you learn how to get to your strength and, and it's really hard to, to, to cover that both ways to yeah. take away your strength. Then they go back to their weakness and now you got to re reapproach and now getting back to your strength. And, and, and you mentioned the guy, you know, Dave Huntley, what a, a what a lacrosse mind, oh, uh, you know, yeah. what a guy, you know, lacrosse is, We'll, we'll, we'll be set back by his loss. Uh, there, yeah. There's no question about it. Yeah. Um, when you're looking at recruiting defensemen, what are you sort of generally looking at and how do you evaluate? It's easy to evaluate their size and their speed. I mean, that, that part is generally easy, but how do you, how do you figure out? I mean, there's some guys that are sick athletes, but they can't cover anybody. You know, they'll, 
you give them one little head fake and they jump a mile and a half. And, and then secondly, how do you evaluate their, their IQ as far as their off ball and their ability to sort of process? Yeah, I like, I like the stick and hand language because sometimes you can't hear guys talking or if they're talking, but you can sometimes see a guy direct someone else and that means he understands the defense a little bit. <laughs> so if, if, if I can watch a guy talk with his stick in his hands, that's usually a little bit of a sign for me. Uh, I agree with you. You don't need to be 6'4", 220 to play defense. Everybody likes the size and the length because of knocking down passes. But if he can't use that to his advantage, like we talked about earlier, of getting close to you, now it's just hand-to-hand combat um, and the sticks are not involved. That's part of it. And, and again, defensively, what's changed recruiting defensively is a little bit of this, uh, this shot clock. Right? How many guys can, can cover the length of a shot clock, can get the ball off the ground, can, can clear the ball? Because if you have to redefend, you turn the ball over in the clearing game, if we're going to have to redefend, then everybody's broken down. So not only do you have to be able to have a couple of guys break down and cover the other team's best offensive players, but you got to have a comfort level of getting the ball off the ground and ending the possession and finishing up a shot clock and making sure that you could clear the ball. And then the PLL taught us that once you cross over that midfield line, you better believe you're an offensive player. And, and who knows, will this college game ever get to a two-pointer and the Jared Newmans of the world enter the, the, the college world? And, and now, you know, people are starting to take that jump shot, which is almost looking like it comes from a pole. Now it's coming from out of a long stick and, and more guys might be scoring that way. Yeah, interesting. So would you say you have more with the shot clock? Do you think there's more value on goalies that can clear it very well and defensemen that can clear it very well than there was before? I do. I I do. I think that, you know, now it's when you look at, you know, as you look at the game, as Dave Huntley looks at the game, as some of these other guys look at the game, you know, we've entered time zones now. And now it's can we buckle down for this amount of time? Can we ride? as much of the 20 seconds as we can so they'll have less time to play offense. Then if we can hold off their, their secondary break and they get into their subbing, can we defend for 40, 45 seconds? Can we dig in and do that? And if they make a mistake, can we take away and steal that time and get the ball over the midfield line with us playing more offense than them playing offense and looking at it a little bit like Moneyball and, and understanding where the time of possession, where we can steal some seconds, and that may turn into minutes. Speaking of money ball, um, so many people, it seems like every year, <laughs> the, the new shot clock rules, or it seems like every year before that, everyone's like, we're going to be a two-way team. We're going to run two-way middies. We're going two-way. We're going full field. We're, we're looking for two-way middies. And if, I think that's what everybody wants. But at the end of the day, you're always like, all right, well, you two guys <laughs> go back in and keep playing defense, and let's make sure we're playing defense. And so – do you think there's, we're going to see more uh, two-way players and we're going to recruit that way? Or do you think it's still going to come down like in box across, there's a 30-second shot clock, and they play offense-defense every single time they get their best offensive guys out? Yeah, I, great point. Um, I think in the, watching a lot of those PLL games or all the PLL games, uh, I think there was always one offensive midi at least that ended up staying, and he subbed out <clears throat> on the next shift down the floor, down the offensive end. Um, you know, you bring up a great point with the with box lacrosse. They're still subbing, you know, and they've got the, the shorter shot clock and they're still, you know, subbing of what goes on. You, you know, you'll get caught on a, a bad bounce or a lucky bounce off the wall. Um, and I do think, you know, to answer your question, I do think you're going to start to see these these college teams maybe get to 
all right, at least one guy on your first two midfields, one guy on the first midfield, maybe one guy in your second midfield, let him always, it, it will be his choice whether we can get him off, but we're okay if he stays and we spend some time with him defensively as yeah. we go forward. I yeah. think you'll always be able to get at least one on and then hopefully get two on, depending on what your riding schemes are. But if we could, you know, if we could have two guys separate them a little bit, put them on different midfields, and we go in that direction, and then understand that if we're going to keep them on, well, then let's find him on the way out as well so we can take advantage of him and come the other way. And that's pretty much the way it's always been. I mean, right. you got to have somebody that can get And you hopefully, you know, have two. But if you don't, you're going to play the best, you know, you're going to end up playing the best guys. Um, I, it's a luxury to, to have two-way guys. And if, listen, if we all had two-way guys that could, like, really know the defense and really know the offense, that would be huge. But sometimes I really feel like when you look at the transition that kills you in the PLL, like if you give up transition, I coached one year with Hunts in the MLL. You give yep. up, you take a bad shot or turn it over, it's coming down your throat, they're going to score. Yep. Um, and, and, and you may say, well, we need more two-way midfielders. We're getting killed in transition. But so much of it actually is your efficiency on offense and not actually taking bad shots and not turning it over badly because no matter who you are, you know, that's going to result in a five-on-four that they're probably going to score. There's no question. It's the decision-making right before that last shot that will affect whether you're in transition or not. Regardless of it's an offensive midi or a defensive midi, there is no tra tra transition if the numbers are the same. It doesn't matter. You know, you got six guys back. They could be, you know, four-year-olds. There's no transition. It's just what it is. Numbers are all even. So it does goes back to exactly what you said. It's, it's that bad angle shot. It's that bad shot that's a save and an up and out. You know, it's that bad pass that got picked off, and that's when you're going to pay. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, uh, and sharing all of your philosophies and views and history and experiences. Um, it was uh, really great talking to you. James, thanks for everything. I appreciate what you do for our sport. Hey, good luck to Hofstra this year. Thank you. All right, see ya. The Phil Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy.